Welcome to Out of the Ordinary, the podcast where we believe that the very best stories grow out of the soil of ordinary life. I'm Lisa Jo Baker. And I'm Christy Purifoy. And a few of my favorite ordinary things are sleeping in on Saturdays, rereading old books, and late night conversations with my teens. Lisa Jo, I love a fire in the wood stove, that first cup of coffee in the morning, and flannel sheets on the bed. As usual, we are recording on the third floor of Christie's 100-year-old farmhouse called Maplehurst. And for those of you who already got your hands on her brand new book, Placemaker, then you know what it looks like here behind the scenes. In my own endorsement, I said, warning, this book will make you homesick for people as well as for places. It also might make you wish you had a green thumb and it will definitely move you toward your garden and your neighbors. And when you're done, you might be tempted to put Maplehurst into your GPS because some places just have to be seen in person. But Lisa Joe, Placemaker isn't just about this old house. It also tells the story of every place that came before from our first tiny apartment in Texas to a condo in the big city of Chicago, from failed DIY to a barn raising and all the trees I fell in love with along the way. Listeners, you can find it wherever you love to buy books. Pick up a copy as a gift to yourself and your home. Whether you love where you are right now or you aren't so sure, Placemaker is for all of us, the ones with deep roots, the ones just starting out, and everyone in between. Listen, what are you waiting for? Go right now. Pick up a copy for yourself and then you can thank me later. Well, congratulations. Oh my gosh, your book launched yesterday. I'm so excited. It's book launch week for Christy Purifoy. I'm so <laughs> thrilled. I feel like there should be confetti guns and cake and... Uh, just your voice Those is things. like confetti all over me. Uh, my loud, loud voice. You're a party in a person, Lisa Joe. You are. <laughs> well, I did bring a few of your favorite things to celebrate when I arrived today because I think books are so special and they should be celebrated and... One of the things I brought that I'm sure we'll be using the next couple of days is honey for you to put in your tea. Oh, yeah. And I've already <laughs> eaten t- three chocolate-covered biscuits. Yes. As <laughs> you do you. all the interviews that lead up to this really special week. But I feel like I'm in this very privileged position to be the friend behind the scenes who can do the kind of interview you can't hear anywhere else. So out of the ordinary listeners, I'm so glad you're here. And wait, pause for a moment quickly because this is a special place to gather. Won't you just scroll down in whatever app you're listening in and just hit the subscribe button? That way we can make sure we show up in your podcast list every week and you get all the new good stuff from us or even take a moment and hit share and share this podcast link with all of your friends because this is where you get the good stuff, my friends. This is where you get the good stuff. Christy, today I get to talk about my perspective of this beautiful book, because in so many ways, I feel like I've lived it. I have have this unique privileged position where I got to live. So I remember very, very well, about two and a half years ago, you and I were sitting downstairs outside, actually, in your garden, right next to the chicken coop. I remember that. On the metal railing bench, Uh underneath what I now know is called the Saucer Magnolia Tree. That's right. You know the name. (laughs) I know the name now because I've read the book. And you shared the concept for this book. And what? So this is where I want to start because 
What I love about this book so much, and you guys, I'm just unabashedly biased, all right? I'm not even going to apologize for it. But truly, as a piece of literature, this book is so unique because you weave together what I know is really hard to do from a writer's point of view. Because you weave together stories, so really memoir in a sense, but you also weave together sort of a horticultural (laughs) journal that at the time when you were sharing with me what you wanted to do, take me back to that moment, because I remember when you pitched the idea, you actually were talking about another book and an author that did this with with Hawks, right? That's right. That's right. I was telling you uh, about a book I had read called H is for Hawk. Helen McDonald is the writer, and it's a memoir of grief. She loses her father, but it's also about um, her fascination with the ancient practice of, I think it's called falconry, where you Mm. train your own hawk and they're kind of like a, it was like the sport of kings, right? In the Middle Ages. And so the book is also about her relationship with this bird. And so I was trying to tell you that that what she had done in the book, which was make me interested in something I had never thought about before. Right. Um, and it had made her her memoir, her story of grief, which is a very universal story, right? right. We all have stories like that. It had made it special and right. interesting and inspiring in ways that I thought, could I, could I do that? Like this completely unexpected flavor she right. baked into her yes. story. So yes. about how to train hawks. She's telling a story about grief, but with a side of falconry. (laughs) (laughs) And I remember that day. It was beautiful. It was hot. We were underneath the tree. There are pink petals on the ground. And you were talking me through this idea for a book you had and how you wondered if you could write a book that, that really baked together two seemingly unrelated things. And I feel like if I'm remembering correctly, I jumped the gun. And before you told me what your plan was, I said, oh my gosh, you could do that with gardening and trees and flowers. You did. And that's when I knew the idea was a good one because I thought, so we've shared in this podcast before that you and I have some different interests, right? I'm the (laughs) Martha Stewart I hate Martha Stewart. (laughs) hate her with a passion. (laughs) So I'm the one in the kitchen or I'm the one in the garden. And the great thing about our friendship is that while you have no interest in gardening yourself, you appreciate that I I do it and that you get to come and receive it. But I thought you wouldn't pick up, I think, naturally a book about gardens, right? I don't think I would. And that's, but I love a good story, Ah. right? So I'm not going to read it just as pure nonfiction, how to cultivate maple trees ever. Yeah. But you tell me about maple maple trees as part of a larger story. I'm sucked in. You want to tell me about falconry? I'm there. You want to teach me about sewing while you're telling me about your grandma who escaped some kind of conflict? Can't stop reading. So when as soon as I could picture in my mind your marriage of these unique parts of our friendship that I don't share at all mm-hmm. into your story, mm-hmm. I was 100% hooked. I just, and I knew other people would be too. I just was so excited at the thought of you teaching about these these things that I don't know anything about. And really, every time I visit, I learn a little about mm-hmm. it, you know, through your garden or your vegetables or your flowers or the oak trees, the maples. But I thought, oh, my, not everybody has that. Like, not everybody can has this unique angle that you could bake into your story. And I knew when you were excited about the idea that the idea was worth pursuing. I knew it would be hard to pull off. (laughs) And it was. It was a challenge. But I knew it was a challenge worth um, attempting because you were 
suddenly excited to read my tree stories and my garden stories. Like you can see the potential. And And what's so interesting to me is, so I understood in theory how Mm -hmm. I thought it would work, Uh uh but I was very excited to get your advanced manuscript to see how, how did she in fact do it? And you guys, I have the book in front of me. It's on my lap. If you hear pages rustling, that's what it is. And I just have to read to you the chapter titles from the table of contents, because when I got it, I was so taken aback. And I thought to myself, what? How could trees possibly be the title for every chapter? So here they are. Um, Chapter one, Citrus Grove. Chapter two, Pine Tree. Chapter three, Saucer Magnolia. Chapter four, Honey Locust. Chapter five, Penn's Woods. Chapter six, Old Growth Forest. Chapter seven, Queen Palm. Chapter eight, Crepe, Myrtle, and Chestnut. Chapter 9, Silver Maple. Chapter 10, Norway Maple. Chapter 11, Rainbow, Eucalyptus, and Roses. And Chapter 12, Arboretum. And I was I was really taken aback because I thought, what is happening? Like, has she, <laughs> has she taken it too far? This is, like, part of me literal? thought it might be weird. <laughs> yeah. So when I started reading Citrus Grove, it was not at all all what I expected. So I thought somehow the story is now taking place in a literal grove of trees. And what is it? You got to tell it. You got to say it. Citrus Grove was our apartment building. <laughs> the name in of their first Texas apartment town. building. Yeah. What are the chances of that? And it yeah. wasn't even a nice apartment building. No. Oh, kind of a no. dingy, rundown apartment building that happened to have the name Everything Citrus Grove. Everything in it was made of plastic. Even the little patio we had, which was teeny tiny, was covered in that fake green plastic no. grass. No. So it literally, it was the opposite of a real grove or a real tree or a real garden. It was the plastic version. And yet I think, I hope in the way that I have written about it, I have written with eyes of love that sees even the beauty of that plastic apartment and the lives we lived there. (laughs) And that was a beginning for you of the journey that ended up here at Maplehurst. And I think often in our lives, we're in a hurry to get to the the destination where we're supposed to be. But what was so beautiful for me to read the story, someone who's known you for years, it was the story behind the story that I didn't know. A lot of details that I wasn't familiar with that helped me understand so much better what you and John do here. Mm. And so when I think about you guys in that early apartment, and I think back to our very first episode of this podcast where we talked about a handful of grass seeds, what were the seeds in that chapter that you have seen grow here mm. at Maplehurst? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think it was the seed of of gathering and of gathering in imperfect places. So we only lived in that little town, only lived in that apartment for not even three months. It was one short summer when Jonathan, my husband, had an internship at a company there. And so we were just there for the briefest time. And yet, I don't even understand it. We had this urge to gather. We were lonely. We wanted friends. And we thought, let's you know invite some people over from church. And so we did that. And the community that grew in that place, I mean, it was explosive. It was propulsive. It was incredible. It still blows my mind to think about it. So I think the seed that I still carry with me from that time is knowing that no matter how imperfect our place, no matter how brief our time, you know, if we only have a matter of weeks in a place, that God can cause something to grow in that place that will astonish us 20 years on. Honestly, Lisa Joe, I don't know if John and I have ever cultivated a community quite like 
we were able to cultivate in that in Citrus, Citrus Grove, Grove apartment. <laughs> I love it so much. And I take much. no credit. Clearly, it was God's doing. It was clearly something bigger than but us But you were willing to us. open the doors. But we opened the doors. And isn't it true that at the time... It was like a youth group or something you were hosting, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. They were supposed to be meeting in this very unwelcoming <laughs> location in the local church. Yeah. And you and John took one look at it and we're like, yeah, no, no we're going to no. relocate to our tiny Isn't apartment. That funny? I think even then we both had the sense that the space mattered and that the mm. place where people would gather should somehow reflect the beauty of human gatherings, yeah. right? And there was nothing beautiful about that little room. It was very beige. It had no windows. And that this is in the church this building. This is in the church. It was like in the basement and it yeah. had metal folding chairs, no <laughs> natural light, um, that kind of rough brown carpeting. And so we thought, you know, we can do better. Even our plastic apartment. <laughs> Even our plastic grass yeah. will be better. Yeah. And you know what made our apartment better is that it was a cared for yeah. place. No one was caring for that little beige yeah. room. <laughs> yeah. No one was thinking about how uncomfortable those metal chairs were. Yeah. Well, we didn't have enough chairs in our apartment, so we just sat on the carpet, you yeah. know. And But we vacuumed that carpet. We <laughs> we prepared a place. Well, what I love about these stories is when I visit you here at Maplehurst, everything, and I know you're going to roll your eyes because you do not feel this way, but as an outsider, everything feels finished. Oh, it, wow. It feels, especially on the inside, it feels like a home that has got, you know, a long legacy behind it, wow. right? It feels to me like a pottery barn catalog or a. it just has that that sense of, place of beautiful um like the layers the layers of history and memory and story but the pieces are each beautiful Mm. that are placed here the the colors on the walls the art that's hung the Mm. rugs on the floor the even the chairs where i think about your big overstuffed chair in the sunroom that Mm -hmm. feels threadbare in places (laughs) from much love but that is what comes with history in a place it has that sense of having been lived in for a long time so i have often thought oh john and christy are just good at this they've Mm. always been good at it it's just natural for them so one of my favorite stories and so you'll have to tell them which of our plant chapters it's in is of jonathan going to the landlord of one of your tiny apartments to ask for paint to paint a wall yeah. and that he'd never done that before right? and that you said at the time in the story you say it was almost out of character that he would just go do that yeah that was pine tree <laughs> that's pine tree chapter yeah, two yeah. so that was another apartment complex you lived in yes called pine tree I just what are the chances it's exactly. so crazy to me those were the yeah pine tree apartments and we moved in and again we were only going to be living in that little apartment for the last semester of college we were married at that point we were finishing college we had one more semester maybe two at the most to go and uh, we moved our stuff in and Jonathan noticed that you know how a, a lot of little rental apartments will have very white paint on the walls right. and probably let's be honest it's the most inexpensive right. paint to, right. to get and so and it I, marks Pete and easily. I lived in like seven rentals yeah, before we ever bought a house the same yes. white you know the cheapest paint that the landlord can find um, understandably and so it marks up very easily and so Jonathan noticed that when we moved in um, the walls had become scuffed with with black marks. And I don't remember noticing or caring, actually. That, I, that is yeah. so shocking <laughs> for me. And I remember reading that story and thinking, are these the same people? <laughs> what is happening? It was so great but to know Jonathan, that you are mortal too yes. when it comes to design. Jonathan <laughs> noticed and Jonathan cared and Jonathan thought I could do something. And he walked over to the apartment manager's office and beneath the pine trees, I assume, although, again, I have no memory of actual pine trees in that place. <laughs> it was just Maybe there pine were none. Tree. I don't pine know. Pine tree apartments, right? yes. 
And he asked for a can of paint. And then I tell the story of the sort of surprising response of that manager that he said, wait, what are you doing? (laughs) Apparently, no one had walked in asking for paint before because I guess in his experience, his college student renters did not care about the black scuff marks on their walls, understandably. And so when John asked for paint and it was given to him and John brought it back, the apartment manager said... You're keeping your place well. What if I gave you a discount on your rent and used your apartment as the kind of show apartment? Mm -hmm. So when prospective renters come, I'll give you some heads up, you know, Mm -hmm. give you some time to pick your dirty clothes up off the floor. But um, I'll I'll cut your rent in exchange for that. And we were so poor. Oh, my goodness. We had nothing, no (laughs) income at that point because we were students. And uh, it was such a gift, a gift we really needed. And it was so surprising. It was just because he'd gone over and, and, asked. and asked. Yeah, I know. And I just found that so encouraging because I realized, oh, I could do that. Like, I could paint a wall. You know, when I look, about Maple- when I look at Maplehurst and what feels finished, I don't understand, like, where's the access point? Like, where's the entry uh, point if I've never begun to right. make a home at this level? And then I realized, oh, I can paint a wall. Right. I can cover up scuff marks. I know what it's like to invite people in and just sit on the carpet. I can do those things. And so when I think about the heart of placemaking, for me, that was a discovery. It doesn't actually require a sense of accomplishment or a a certain level of financial stability to be a placemaker. Right. It's not about perfection. It's not about consumption. So it's not about buying things. Mm. Um, I've always been really, I think, careful about that. I don't think, I think in our our culture, when we tend to talk about making a place or tending a place or homes and, you know, making them beautiful, it's always with this underlying message of, okay, now go out to the store Mm. (laughs) and buy all the pretty things. And I just don't think if placemaking is going to be for all of us and sustainable and also holy work, um, it certainly involves things, but it's not about... So um, what's the difference in your mind between placemaking and like home design, like HGTV? mm -hmm. I think of them as overlapping circles. Okay. So for those of us, so they're they're related. Mm -hmm. I am someone who naturally is interested in home decor. When I was a kid, I don't know if I ever told you, I think I was in junior high. I even thought for a while I wanted to be an interior designer. I did not know that. I did. I did. So I was always interested in homes and design and making things pretty and, you know, the artistic side of that. Um, So some of us will have that natural pull. And so Mm -hmm. our placemaking might involve more of really thinking about paint colors Mm. and, you know, design choices. But when I say we are all placemakers, I am not saying that we are all designers. Interior designers. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Or yeah. that we all have to care about those things <laughs> yeah. or feel confident choosing colors and so on. That Right. Because didn't yeah. you have a friend as one of your early readers of the book, you specifically asked her because you know she <laughs> does not care about that version of placemaking. That's, so that's so great because yeah. it's accessible to all of us. I knew she would be the perfect uh, early reader because she would point out any places where I wasn't including her or where she couldn't see herself doing this or being a part of the story as someone who's not naturally drawn to those things. So the circles overlap, but you might find yourself planted on the side of placemaking that doesn't really have a whole lot to do with with home design. You might be much more concerned with the conversations that are happening around your table. Um, You might be more concerned with, you know, how you use your space, but much less concerned with the material that your kitchen countertops are made of, you know? And and I think that is, um, I think that's the great thing about placemaking is that it's such a spacious idea, such a spacious word. And uh, that we can all kind of find our place within it because we all have some relationship 
to place. We all have some kind of relationship to the walls around us and the ground beneath our feet. And uh, and I hope this book invites people to, to think more about what with their own relationship with their places. And I like that. And I think for me, that's why it was so powerful the way you wove in the stories about the trees along the way. Hmm. Because I think nature, trees, plants, roses, they are rooted in a place in a way that people aren't these days. People tend to move. They're nomadic. They're We're you know constantly relocating to new places. But 100-year-old tree is by nature the definition of that place. However, you share with us how certain plants, though, have come with the people who've made those places. And that was so fascinating to me to try and track those different stories between the people and the plants that make a place. Mm-hmm. People have carried tree seeds with them. They've carried little cuttings from roses as they journeyed on to new places. And Or people, you know, I think of people like your ancestors who would have traveled to South Africa. No doubt they brought seeds right. with them. They brought cuttings, right. things that would remind them of home. Yeah. I, I have a, I know someone here locally actually who's originally from Colorado. And so um, a very special treat to him is the aspen tree. You know, those beautiful right. Right. white um, bark and the the shaking aspen leaves. So I think the one, you know, one time when he was home, he um, bought, I don't know if it was a seed or a seedling, but he brought it back here to Pennsylvania thinking, I want to have a bit of Colorado growing in my yard. But he told me it has not done well. It is really? not, yeah. So, so different it, environments really yeah, do matter. They really do. And some trees, of course, will you know do better um, than others. But the aspens, it seems, are really at home in Colorado. Oh. You know, it's interesting. I think people might be that way too. There, there's some of us who are going to be rooted for our whole lives, mm-hmm. and there are others of us who are going to move and move and move. I think my life has been a little bit of both. Mm. Um, I know you have stories you could tell as well <laughs> about what that feels like. Um, but places really are, they're not just shaped by the people who live in them, but the things that are growing in them. And I think that's the aspect too, that I see um, this, this whole placemaking thing as being part of um, who God is as mm. well. I think of, you know, we tend to think of God as, well, He created the earth. But I'm also realizing He carved out special, unique places all all throughout creation, you know, he carved out a, a garden of Eden. He he kind of distinguished a promised land. I think he still does that. He he planted the aspen trees in Colorado yeah. and wildflowers on those mountains. And he he planted, you know, he silver maples for Pennsylvania. And so part of sort of noticing um the things that grow that make each place unique is noticing God's own um creative care that he's taken and because i take so much of that for granted you guys Mm. that's why this book is so great you will never look at trees the same again (laughs) in in such a wonderful way like you think of them i think of them now as compatriots on the journey in a different way because i think about that guy whose name i forget now but you told his story who basically made it his life's mission to rescue trees yes story because that was so crazy yes, to me yeah. and he sunk like his whole fortune into into rescuing trees yeah from just he had he lived in the pacific down. northwest and we'll have to put his name in the show notes yes he's, st- he's still around he's still doing this work um i read about him recently but he um ta- he, he 
so you know we know we're familiar with the concept of like a rescue animal right, right? right. you know and you 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 can go and you can adopt a dog or a cat well he is sort of that way with trees <laughs> <laughs> so often there are trees that have to be cut down maybe they're too close to power lines or maybe someone is um, building a new house and you know expanding and they and a tree has to go or maybe someone is just tired of the tree in their yard I mean people will cut them down or dig them out but he has ads out there so people in his area know that if they don't want to tree they can call him and he will come and he will dig it up so wild and he will bring it to his tree sanctuary (laughs) (laughs) and he will care for it and he has hundreds and hundreds of rescued trees and he knows the names and the stories of each one okay one i'm just gonna tell you one little and this isn't even in placemaker so here's the little the little bonus um one tree that he tells the story of was a memorial tree that a mother planted for her Mm. son who had passed away but the tree outgrew its space and she couldn't it couldn't stay where it was she, hmm. i think she she may have even been in an apartment and had it like in a big pot or something so um but she couldn't ba- i mean it it was a tree for her son well he adopted that tree That's so wild it is now this towering beautiful specimen um the mother can come and visit it <laughs> <laughs> but he's caring for it i think that awareness of um just the majesty of trees, their meaning. I love, love, love hearing you say that you won't look at trees the same right. again. Or for example, how you talked about how many thousands of acorns have to fall to the ground for one tree to grow. How I often think, oh, I'll just, if I ever wanted to, I could just plant it, right? Mm-hmm. And it would grow. But how you, was it you and Thaddeus or you and Bo that me tried and Bo. to? We tried and failed. We tried and <laughs> you failed. tried to plant one. Yeah. And yet look at your avenue of trees yeah. here. And so I think it just helped me give new eyes to look at the places we are not just through the eyes of the people, but through the eyes of the environment that God has uniquely placed around us and the richness of it and how, you know, think about all of those scriptures about how all of nature bears witness to God or how all of the earth groans under the weight of sin. For me, it just gave character and personality to how I think about these plants around me that I take completely for granted. And so I don't want to give away all the stories in the book, but you have to tell this one because when you and I talked about the concept for this book, we were sitting under your majestic saucer magnolia. This tree is so stunning. It's huge. Every year in the spring, it bursts into bright pink bloom. It is like a canopy of pink that you can sit under as we have during Easter egg hunts. We have photographs of this stunning tree. But I live now just outside of Washington, D.C., and you've lived in the Virginia area, and we're familiar every year with the the cherry blossom festivities. And cherry blossoms are so beautiful. And every year they burst into pink fireworks Mm -hmm. all down the river in D.C. It's so pretty. And you have come into town to see those cherry blossoms when you lived there. But it was not a cherry blossom Mm -hmm. that really caught your eye back before Maplehurst was even truly a dream to live at a place like this. You discovered the saucer maple for the first time, the saucer magnolia for the first time. That's right. I had never seen one before. I grew up in the far, deep, deep south, Texas, and they don't grow there. These are northern magnolias. They aren't the the evergreen southern magnolias that I knew. So I'd never seen one, never heard of them, never, didn't even know such a wonder existed <laughs> until that spring. Jonathan and I were living outside of D.C. We went in for the, the cherry festival. And for the first time, I saw one of these trees. And I just thought, what <laughs> is this beautiful thing? 
saying, why has no one told me about these trees? So, but that was a time, and I tell the, you know, I describe this more in the book. It was a very hard time. It was a very hard place. I was unhappy. I was lonely. I, I wondered if I would ever feel at home anywhere. I, I didn't know. So you guys had moved up from Texas. Yeah. John was having really his first job in right. essence. You were trying to work. and Yeah. Yeah. And just not, you, you built, know. You tried to build a. <laughs> we tried to build a patio. <laughs> a patio that was totally bad and crooked. And it makes me so up. happy that it was such a failed <laughs> DIY. <laughs> makes me feel like there's hope for the rest of us. I found a photo of it recently. It was so ugly and sad, <laughs> but we tried. We were trying and we were, I think we were trying to put roots down and it just wasn't happening. The soil of life for us then was rocky and and just dry and and difficult. But I saw this vision of this gorgeous tree, and I just thought, I I, I want that. There was something about it was so I, the, you know the beauty of it. I just thought I, I need that in my life, and I, I see the journey from from there to here. And how in each place there have been these these magnolia trees, but I've never you know had one in my yard. I've never planted one. And so to find one here, and not only any old saucer magnolia, but the biggest, mm. most spreading, most beautiful saucer magnolia I've ever seen. And everyone who sees it says, I've never seen one so big. I didn't know they got so big. I didn't know they could live so long. Mm. They don't this one obviously must be very old for a saucer magnolia to have grown so large. So to me, it just <laughs> feels like like some promise was made back then to mm. me. And I didn't even know a promise was made. But all that longing I felt when I saw that tree mm. has somehow um, brought me to this place and is somehow fulfilled in this place. And it's good for me to remember that because this place is not perfect. My life here is not perfect. It's not finished. <laughs> it's not finished in any way, um, in any way. And so on those darker days or those days where I question things, and I put a lot of those questions into the book, the questions I still have in this place, I can look at that tree and um, just have a sense of um I don't know, God's special care for us, you know, mm. <laughs> that he would bring me home to a place with such a gorgeous saucer magnolia. And it's so amazing to think we sat under that tree to, talk about, this book. to talk about this book. <laughs> and now it's a reality that yeah. I'm holding in my hands. And so I have to ask you a question just as a writer. I am so curious how you concocted this timeline that wove you know, historical events in your own life with historical events in, you know, more of an agricultural, horticultural timeline with specific trees that are part of your story. Did you map it out somehow? Did you have an Excel spreadsheet? Like literally, how did you do that? (laughs) I'm so glad you asked. I feel like only another writer would would ask this. I mean, because as I was reading it, I'm like, how did she weave these strands of DNA together? This is crazy. I am glad you asked because it was very hard. (laughs) It was very hard. I really struggled with it. I would have been annoyed if you were like, oh, Lisa Joe, it just flows. It just just poured out of me. (laughs) It was so tricky because not only was I, so I actually, I, I, I felt in my own head that there were three strands mm-hmm. that I was trying to weave okay, together. Okay, what were they? So there was the one strand that was always h- here at Maplehurst. Yes, and you're it, right, because that yeah. always comes back as an anchor. Yeah, so yes. it was the strand of discovering that Maplehurst was really falling apart, and we mm. did not know how to fix it, and and had we made a terrible mistake. And by this you mean because it's a hundred year old exactly. farmhouse, it has a lot of issues. <laughs> it had a lot of when issues. it comes to very basic things like the gloss in the windows yes. or the the cement and mortar or the exactly. whole roof that was falling apart yeah. that you didn't realize. Yes. So there's that timeline okay. of we've come to Maplehurst, 
we're completely overwhelmed and I don't know how, you know, how will that story end? Right. So that's one. The other was all the places that we've lived, all the places along the way. With tree names, which is so crazy. So that that timeline of our our family's placemaking. So Mm -hmm. those two. And then the third, which really could be probably parceled out into a couple, were these um, these more layered historical stories of placemakers who've gone before. So, you know, the the Pennsylvania Quakers who shaped the land where I live now, the the pioneers who, you know, my ancestors who moved into Texas and the way they shaped the land. Also, always thinking for me about the native inhabitants, the mm-hmm. people who'd been here before, right, you know, Europeans right. and, and remembering them. So, all those layers of history and placemaking and the ways that the land has changed and the ways that, that those stories are told through the trees. How do I weave that throughout? So, I'll tell you, it was, but, it but was first, complicated. Before you explain how you did, I have to now have a sidetrack. Okay. You, were you doing research specifically then? In order to include it, or was this just part of like your, you know, years of loving trees and having read, and then you're like, oh, I should go grab that story I read about? Or were you doing specific research on, I mean, for example, the story about the people that accidentally brought poison ivy? (laughs) Did you just know that, or had you done research? Yeah. So some of it, I was just pulling on the things that I have been fascinated with for years. So I really was going downstairs and pulling books about antique roses off my shelf that you remembered. remembered. And I thought, ooh, I think this is relevant. Okay, But some of it was that what, for instance, I started writing a little bit about poison ivy. And then I thought, I think I need to know more about this. And so then I did, and then I would, I would do a little research and then I would find so much stuff that I would think, oh, this has got to be a part of it. So it was almost, I had to stop myself from doing too much research because that part was, was so, so fun. So it was a little bit of both. Okay. Um, And then, so now go back to the writing. How did you marry those three threads? Yeah. So the two timelines, Maplehurst versus all the places, I just had to go slow. <laughs> I I would have to rewrite portions where I realized, oh, I've I've got that out of Did whack. you outline them? Did you have like not really? It was more in notes? my head. Yeah, it was okay. just in my head, but I would try to keep track of it. Um, you know, actually I think sometimes when I would sit down and write the chapter, I would actually outline. I'd say, okay, this one starts in Maplehurst, but then it moves back to this point. Or at least to, and then have bullet points like yeah. I want to talk yes. about these yeah. specific things. This is the research I that's did, pertinent to that. this chapter. And and the other thread I would weave in, I feel like um, it, it wasn't mathematical. It was more a rhythm thing. I would be writing and then I would read back what I had written and I would think, is it time to step away from myself? Because mm. I was always aware that this isn't a memoir where I'm making any sort of claim that my life is especially fascinating. <laughs> mm. There are memoirs that do that. There are people who have lived extraordinary, right, fascinating right. lives. And so we can just stick with their story from yes. page one to page 300. That's not my story. And I didn't want to pretend that it was. So I would dig into my own story and then feel, I think the time has come to step away from myself and sort of point the spotlight on someone else or Mm. on a tree or something. So that was the sort of feeling out the rhythm for the reader, a reader who um, isn't necessarily going to be like you, my best friend, (laughs) (laughs) who cares about all my stories. (laughs) I really had to think about the reader and say, this is for them. This is not just me recording all the interesting things that I've experienced in my life. This is for them. So, what are are they ready for now in chapter seven? Oh, I think they're ready for a little bit of this, a little bit of that. So, thinking about the reader. So, talk to me about the rhythm of your writing days. Do do you, are you an early, you need to write first thing in the morning? Like in Stephen King's memoir, he talks about how he gets up and literally writes for like four hours every morning 
every day, the same time at the same desk. What is that like for you? Do you have a specific room you like to write in? Do you do anything longhand? Are you on a computer? Do you wear the same outfit every day? Do you listen to music or not? Mm. Like, are you drinking tea or coffee? Do Mm. you walk us through the writing day for you and Mm -hmm. what that rhythm looks like? Yeah, it's always morning. Okay. Always. Early, like how early? Have you got your kids off to school? school. Okay, so you get up, you get the kids off to school. And then morning. And uh, by by afternoon, my brain is tired and mm. I go for a walk and I'm done. Although sometimes in the morning I would hit a, a patch where I didn't know how to work out a puzzle or I wasn't sure what should come next. And so then I would go for a walk right then because I have found mm. that the, that physical movement, it's actually a really important part of cr- creative work, I think. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you have to stop trying to think the solution and just let your body kind of work it out in a walk. So sometimes I would stop in the morning and go for a walk, but always morning, always on the computer. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like I don't even know how to write know, anymore without being able to copy and paste and zoom around, you know? Do you use any specific writing program or are you just nope. in Word? I have before, but I didn't for this book. I found that just the most basic Word document, I never listen to music. Okay. Um, I love music. I find it very inspiring. And so sometimes I'll stop writing if I'm stuck and listen to a song, but I can't listen to music while I write because um, the rhythm of the words is so important to me mm-hmm. in the story that a song, then it mess, uh, then I can't hear the rhythm mm-hmm. of what I'm writing. So I have to be able to hear what I'm writing. I'll even stop and read things aloud because it's so important to me how mm. it how it sounds and um, you know is it making the kind of music I want it to make. So I so I don't listen to to music. But yeah, I'll often have a candle lit or you know a cup of tea. Um, and then I just don't, I didn't try to do too much each day. So and do you write up in the here, mostly mm-hmm. in this third floor attic room where we record the podcast yeah, this at this desk, old desk right that John here. gave you as a gift? I can remember sitting here and writing about the saucer magnolia and looking out this little window behind my shoulder at the saucer magnolia in bloom. That's so wild. And uh, yeah, so right here, all of it. Which of the chapters was the hardest puzzle to solve? Like which one mm-hmm. were you like, oh, how do I tie these together? Or yes. was the most challenging? You know, what it was it was the chapters in the middle where i uh, some of the chicago chapters where i talk about how our family grew and the birth of our babies and that's because those are very big events in my life but i didn't think they were meant to be such big events in the book mm. and so how to tell my reader about these significant changes in our lives but not give them more weight in the story as a story than they needed. So there's one, ch- um, goodness, I which chapter is it? It's in Chicago, and within a couple of paragraphs, I have given birth to two sons. <laughs> <laughs> but it was so fun to figure, it was hard, but once I settled on it, it was really fun to try to figure out how do I convey these stories in all their beauty and their meaning and their power but do it in just a couple paragraphs mm. because I'm not going to give it any more room than that. But I'm also it's also not an aside. I mean, these are incredible events, right. you know, the birth of That's my such son. such an interesting <laughs> commentary on the discipline of writing. Yeah. How when you are writing a book, there is a specific story that you're telling. Yeah. Of course, there are many, many, many other tangents that you're tempted to try yes. and explore. But it's that discipline of being, I always talk about being ruthless yes. with your own stories that you love and saying, nope, that doesn't yeah. serve where I'm headed. Right. It doesn't serve my reader. It doesn't serve but my I reader. But I could have written whole chapters on right. the birth of those boys, right? Right. <laughs> right. And you might yeah, in the future for yeah. something else. Yeah. But I just think that's so interesting. I wonder if as we close out, it's just always so fun to talk to writers about how 
how they unpack. If you might give to our listeners who are aspiring writers, Mm -hmm. what do you think, what three disciplines in your life have served you the most in your writing journey? Mm, Reading, number one. What kind of reading do you Mm -hmm. prefer? And I I think, because I think you're interesting in this regard, because I think you read so widely. I do read widely. You read cookbooks for pleasure. Oh, gosh, yeah. Yeah, So just that's what I'm getting at. Just name all the kinds of books you read, because all of them. You know, I really encourage aspiring writers to read poetry, actually. And Mm. I say that as someone who does not, I'm not a poet. I'm not attempting to write poetry. I will never be a poet. Right. But I think because it's so different from the kind of writing I do, and because poets are so careful with every single Mm. word, that it's just good for all writers to to have some poetry, yeah, some poetry in their be life. Very disciplined with your word choices and yeah. story choices. Yeah. 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 So I say number one is reading. I almost want to say all three of mine are reading, reading, reading. I think it's reading that um, that turned me into a writer. So tell me all the kinds of books you read on a typical. Yeah, I read like spiritual classics. I try to devote, I, you know. The early morning time that some people think of as maybe prayer time or quiet time, um, I do some praying, but that's the time where I read some kind of devotional book or spiritual classic that um, is maybe a little harder to get through. Mm. Maybe it's been sitting on my shelf for a long time and I've never Mm. gotten around to it because it's maybe not the fun book. That's my morning reading. And it's so satisfying to work through those books that I've been wanting to read for so long, but now Mm. I've given them that time in Mm. the morning. And then it's almost like, when do I drink coffee? When do I drink tea? And then in the afternoon, (laughs) you know, the afternoon I take a break and I do my fun reading, my mysteries, my Louise Penny, you know. And then, oh, goodness, I'll keep cookbooks by my bedside table and read, you know, read about food any time. So when you ask about disciplines as a writer, number one, absolutely reading. And I could even say reading, reading, and reading um, some more. But I think I'm also going to say... Silence. Oh, interesting. What I mean by that is tuning out a lot. I mm. think we, if we are taking in too much, if we're taking in too much news, too many blogs, too many podcasts even, but just too much, if we're taking in too much on a daily basis. And even just that like mindless rhythm of Instagram, I yes, would think. Too much scrolling, noise, too yeah. much, too much, too much noise. Um, then we we aren't we aren't giving space for our own thoughts, our own observations, our own voice to have time to hmm. percolate and and emerge. Yeah. So, it, so there's this tension when I'm writing, I'm needing to fill up with mm-hmm. words. I'm needing to fill up with good books, but I'm choosing them very carefully. And I'm in that season of writing also setting up some fences That's and, and so pushing good. out a lot that Reading maybe when I'm not like right now, I'm not writing a book. And, and so I'm taking in, I think a lot more random stuff and it, and it's okay. Mm-hmm. But during that book writing time, um, I'm, I'm much more careful. That's so good. Do you have a yeah. third one? So reading writer's discipline, silence, <sighs> Paying attention all the time. Mm. You just never know. You never know when you will see something or notice something or have a conversation with someone. um, And it will, that'll be the spark. So you're just, it could come at any time. And so just be ready for it. You know, have the little notebook, have the pen, have your iPhone where you have a note-taking app. Might be in the shower, right? It might be at church. It might be in a conversation with a friend. Um, But just knowing that those sparks will come. And so be ready for them and pay attention. I love that so much. You guys, please, if you haven't got this book yet, do yourself a favor and get it. It is 
a beautiful exercise in the art of writing and the art of storytelling. And I thought as we ended here, I was going to end with an endorsement by one of Christy and I's favorite writers, John Blaise. He is a writer, but he's also a poet. He's a storyteller. He's an editor who works for Waterbrook Multnomah, who are a subsidiary of Penguin Random House. Just a really respected voice in the writing community. And he's a man. And I love that he endorsed this book because this isn't a book just for women. This is a book for all of us who are understanding, especially as we get older, the value of place, of where we are from, but also where we are growing into. And this is what he says. Carl Rogers said, what is most personal is most universal. I kept thinking of that while reading Christy Purifoy's smart and beautiful book, Placemaker. Page after page of the winding path that led her family to a place called Maplehurst caused me to reflect on my own life, the places I've sought to make, and how they, in equal measure, ended up making me. Please, do yourself a favor. Put Placemaker on your nightstand. You are welcome. Welcome.